Hello everyone, it's August 2nd, 2022, so the Mars sample return is coming into focus. It looks like Percy will recollect its samples, and if it can't get them all, there will be two little helicopters to help out. That's just cool. There's nothing more to say. Well, I guess there is, so let's discuss and lift off. the tower welcome to episode 370 of the overall mechanics podcast i'm david i'm ben and i'm dennis all right so dennis you're going to tell us about some debris i guess we have a lot of stuff raining down from space that's not natural yeah i was gonna say because right the, the the big one the uh kind of uh uncontrolled re-entry bingo cards that people were playing right. was of course the uh first stage of the uh the recent uh, uh long march on the uh uh, Wenxian launch. Yeah. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so that came down. It looks like uh, it, it's, it, it hasn't been identified on the ground yet. Uh, anything uh, hopefully uh, hit the ocean somewhere in the, the kind of Southeast Asia uh, around Borneo and uh, uh, Indonesia, it looks like in that area, Philippines maybe. But uh, so that's where it came down. And, and there's some pretty cool footage of it. It looks amazing. Although the really? uh, picture though, or the video starts in, uh, you know, landscape and then goes to vertical midway through. And so it's very disappointing to watch that and have to kind of crane your head 90 degrees. But but what I thought was really wild too is that apparently some people found uh, a dragon, a SpaceX dragon trunk in Australia. And they originally thought, you know, they were still finding pieces of, uh, you know, friggin' Skylab from, you know, decades ago because that's, you know, Australia's, I guess, pretty big. And so you could imagine maybe mm-hmm. some debris that wasn't found. But, you know, apparently this uh, this stuff was, uh, yeah, it, it looks fuzzy because of all the uh, frayed carbon fiber that you're seeing. But apparently people are freaking out because you're not supposed to touch carbon fiber <laughs> uh, with your hands. And uh, people are doing that in these pictures as they're posing with it. And so people are scared in the comments do you guys know or anyone in the chat know the uh the dangers of why you should be wearing gloves if you're going to be touching uh carbon fiber strands that are all frayed out i didn't know about that but i'm not surprised i mean just by looking at it i can tell like you probably shouldn't touch it it looks like you know kind of like what fiberglass would look like you don't want to touch it there's very Mm. very small fibers that can get uh lodged in your skin i see similar to asbestos that that sounds yeah. like what you're saying okay so it's not so much a toxicity which would be really no right yeah carbon carbon is not a toxic material and and asbestos is i mean it's rock like it's mostly silicon and so it's it's not like toxic it's just the arrangement where asbestos is so small that it can actually like right. get into your you know interfere with you on a cellular level and and screw up your dna i believe i could be wrong but I mean, they, they mine asbestos out of the ground. So it's, it's reasonably yeah, yeah. safe to say it's silicon. <laughs> and then, um, and then, yeah, like carbon, like pure carbon is, is all over the place. Uh, and it's not, um, same in the chat says, I would not bet that cooked out carbon epoxy composite isn't toxic as well. That makes sense that mm. epoxy might break down into toxic compounds or those toxic compounds might be freed from the, uh, from the cured resin like matrix and it might be they might be free to be uh you know bioavailable in a way that they normally aren't you and kyle bringing up asbestos i i loved uh, a podcast i listened to that basically broke it down oh it actually might have been the space above us was talking about it in some context but anyway they i mean basically just imagine in the old days if you could find a rock that you could like weave into like fabrics like how valuable that would be. And so, and so that's kind of why, uh, yeah, it's basically a rock that you could weave into stuff. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's rock wool, which is often used for 
insulation, but it's not, it's too brittle to be woven, I imagine. Uh, but I, I love the idea of rock wool. Like you, you make lava and then you spin it <laughs> and you got rock wool. Like that's cool. We have more helicopters to join the Mars sample return. I mm. guess uh, this ingenuity thing is really taken off, huh? I mean, uh, that wasn't a hey. point. Oh, no. Uh, how are helicopters going to be involved in sample return uh, in yeah. the future? Well, let's let's rewind. Uh, two years ago, NASA and ESA did uh, a cost estimate on MSR, and they estimated that the project would cost $7 billion. An independent review then said, okay, well, maybe $8 billion because we're seeing about a billion dollars worth of overrun being likely. Back in March, we talked about this, and I think this is what is probably going to be in most people's heads, is that NASA said they were going to do two different landers. One was going to have a fetch rover built by ESA, um, and then another one would be uh, a uh, the the MAV, the Mars Ascent Vehicle. And that was going to be the, the way that they were going to get down to the size that they could land both of them using an MSL style, uh, sky crane. Like the whole entry, descent, and landing sequence would be, um, able to draw from the, the MSL, uh, heritage. If not being an exact copy, who knows? That's kind of what we're, we were thinking, uh, from March until now. And so now what's happened is NASA finished their systems requirement review, the SRR. Um, this is near the end of phase A in the uh, NASA uh, project life cycle. SDR, uh, system definition review, is going to be the next big review before they leave phase A and move into phase B, which is preliminary design and technology completion. And the SRR is really a, a a time to sit and look back at everything that you've looked at during the conceptual phase A and say, what is going to work? What isn't going to work? Are there any things that we discounted that we might want to bring back? Um, and like just really dig into all of your work uh, preparing to, you know, make all these definitions and then move on into uh, less conceptual parts of the mission design. I know I'm surprised to learn that they hadn't really finalized some of these mission requirements when they've already sent <laughs> a rover. That's kind of a crucial part of the whole uh, con ops. As the, yeah. Are you guys surprised or did you know that they were still, still had this flexibility at this point? Uh, I knew that they had this flexibility and that was reinforced by the fact that they split the mission into two different, ro two different landers. But yeah, it, it is really interesting to see these projects overlap like that, where they can have one side of an interface defined, built, and flown, and then the other side of that interface being being completely unknown, really. Right, right. Hmm. That's yeah, that's exactly what <laughs> surprised me. And and Colin Colin points out the only thing that they have to interface with is a sample canister, mm -hmm. or at at very least that's the most that they have to interface with. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, what that interface is actually going to look like. But yeah, exactly. Like th this is this is like uh, um, deciding you're going to put something on a USB. Uh, to store like a USB stick and you're going to store it on this thumb drive before you know what the computer is going to look like that you're going to read the data off with. Um, mm. Not that, you know, the sample, can, the sample canisters are 
as well-defined as the USB standard, but you know, it's, it's kind of the same thing. Like, it, you know, it, it's not that complicated. It's got to have a particular shape. It's got to be grabbable and, oh. and that's good enough, but good, good way to think about it, Dennis. Thank you for bringing that up. So as NASA came out of their SRR, they actually, uh, did another, like big architectural level redesign. And this is, this is pretty cool. Um, and it talks about some of the things that we had talked about. So first off, they're pulling the rover and the lander, uh, they're pulling one of the rovers and its lander out. So the fetch rover is not going to be needed. And a lander for a fetch rover that's not needed is also not needed. Instead of a fetch rover, they're actually going to be using Perseverance to bring all the samples to the ascent vehicle, which is something that we had talked about. And we're kind of like, well, you know, it's a science vehicle. It's really good at doing science. Maybe it's, you know, best to not use it for this. But I think uh, when it comes down to it, like it already is in place. It's already doing uh, navigation in such a way that it can put all the canisters together in, in clumps. So yeah, Mike in the chat says, poor Percy having to go clean up all of its toys. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, it, it makes sense. Like it's already there. It, it sucks that it's going to have to stop doing science, but it'll have this wonderful opportunity, uh, to go back over either its same path or a slightly different path and, you know, kind of get follow up data on some of the things that it's seen. So, uh, ESA's involvement is not gone. Um, instead of building a fetch rover, ESA is now going to be building a robotic arm that will sit on the, the lander that holds the MAV. Um, and when, uh, Vera or, or Percy, I, I like Vera better. Uh, when Vera comes back with all these canisters, um, the ESA arm is going to pick them up, uh, off of Vera and transfer them to MAV. Now, in terms of interfaces, uh, the arm is only going to be grabbing the canister, but now it has to do it from another vehicle rather than from the ground, uh, which could be easier, could be harder. Kind of an interesting little complication there. Sorry, what is Vera? Is that that's another nickname for Percy? Yeah, per Perseverance Vera. Oh, that, I've that's, never heard. I've never heard. Oh. That. <laughs> yeah, Vera was was a possible other nickname that has been discarded, and I I can't let it go. Cool. <laughs> keep, keep, keep the uh, keep the dream alive. <laughs> keep keep the dream alive and keep confusing people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So as a backup to having perseverance uh, go all the way to the MAV, um, or potential, you know, I, we're not we're not sure uh, what the plan is going to be. But they're not just going to rely on perseverance. They're going to have a they're going to have backup. They're going to have two backups and that's the helicopters. So they're probably going to be reasonably heavily based on ingenuity. However, they are going to be uh, more massive than ingenuity. Um, they'll also have uh, motorized wheels instead of just static landing legs. And they're also going to have their own robotic arms. So they can land near a canister, uh, drive up to it, pick up the canister fly back to where the MAV is, land, drive up to the MAV, and hand over the canister. Um, it, it's just insane to me that we went from Ingenuity being uh, this crazy experiment 
they were hoping to get maybe five flights and then we get ingenuity lasting so much longer and being so much more valuable both as a, a scientific vehicle but also as a navigational vehicle and we went from that middle step to the idea of putting robotic arms on and using these things as backup to you know an entire msl curiosity perseverance class of rover like it's really cool that the ingenuity team proved out this concept so well that a totally different project was uh was influenced and and they're going to borrow that idea really really lovely now the the two helicopters are going to be backup uh to you know using an actual fetch vehicle functionality from vera uh, but they aren't going to just be sitting there doing nothing if that's not what they're used for. They can also be used for observing the area and providing a, a second uh, perspective. But also, this is something that I'm very excited about, uh, doing launch photography of MAV during its launch. Like, we're talking Kerbal Space Program perspectives, right? Uh, wow. We're talking... Uh, watching uh, the the LEM lift off of the lunar surface from a rover. Like, really, <laughs> really cool. That's incredible. That's good. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they better have good video of that. <laughs> I know, right? But now we have so much better control, I mean, circuitry, really, <laughs> that we're not having to time this from Earth uh, with a delay. Like, they're going to be able to capture this footage pretty well. And... They're probably not going to want to have both of them in the air because uh, it's probably kind of risky to have a rocket launching with some helicopters. But maybe they'll put one close by and then have the other one a bit farther away and get it up into the air and see if they can track it from the air. I think that would be really cool. I'm not going to hang my hopes on it, but it seems really like a neat possibility. Uh, one of the other possibilities they were looking at was using the Rosalind Franklin rover uh, as the fetch rover. Um, Isa said, no, that's not going to work. Uh, Rosalind Franklin's design is, is too different from the, what would be required for that kind of thing. And that, that makes sense. I'm sure that they could add an end effector that could pick these things up without too much issue. They'd probably have to give up a science instrument, but may, you know, maybe they could do that. But then being able to store the canisters safely, uh, so that they could pick up more than one at a time. Like it really gets out of hand quickly, but you know, it's worth asking, I guess. So at, at the beginning of this news item, I mentioned the budgets that were uh, estimated two years ago. And right now we don't know how this is going to affect the budget, but I think it's relatively safe to say that a single lander is going to cost somewhere in the vicinity of half as much as two landers, maybe two thirds uh, of what two landers would cost, something like that. Um, ESA certainly is going to be spending less money uh, developing an arm rather than an entire fetch rover. But I, I think it was the Space News article that pointed out that all of this is happening uh, at a time when ESA is kind of scrambling, looking for uh, a new way to fly the Rosalind Franklin rover, right? The the ExoMars mission. And um, Sam in the chat was super helpful, pointing out that while NASA or while uh, while Roscosmos pulled support for Soyuz, and Soyuz, you know, 
has launched vehicles to Mars, Mars Express launched on a Soyuz. Uh, this was uh, going to be flying on a Proton, which is also uh, verboten at this point. Uh, but that, that wasn't even the first issue. Uh, I'm pretty sure Roscosmos pulled out of the ExoMars program before they pulled out of French Guiana. So ESA, you know, no longer has the lander that Russia was going to be building and they're, they no longer have a, a launch vehicle. And so they're kind of scrambling to figure out how they're going to get there, th this other very large mission off the ground. And so I, I wonder if that might have had a little bit of influence on uh, NASA's decision to reduce their like required input. I, I think that this solution of using helicopters in a single lander probably would have been what they landed on to begin with. I mean, just based on the, the shock that the community expressed when, uh, when they split it into two separate landers. But, you know, maybe this, this one little thing helped clinch the decision. Maybe, uh, ESA helped them, uh, settle into this decision, uh, faster or, uh, more solidly than they might otherwise have. Either way, it's, uh, it's a really interesting kind of, uh, politics impinge on science moment. All right, let's do four short and sweet this week. Ben, what is the first? Right. Utelsat OneWeb merger. Uh, Utelsat and OneWeb have announced an agreement to merge their businesses, combining the former's fleet of geostationary satellites with the latter's LEO constellation. Utelsat already owns 23% of OneWeb, and both companies hope the merger will be able to leverage the advantages of GEO, having more capacity to specific regions, and LEO, having lower latency. This isn't the only enterprise looking at combining satellites at both orbits, as GEO operators Viasat and Telsat are also adding LEO satellites to their portfolios. Viasat via a merger with Inmarsat and Telesat by deploying its own constellation called Lightspeed. All right, Mast and Space files for bankruptcy. The innovative space company, which has been developing a lunar lander for a NASA Eclipse mission, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, with plans to sell one of its major assets to a competitor. Recent financial problems have forced Maston to furlough its staff for a month and fire many of the people who are working on the lunar mission, XL-1. The company's largest creditor, SpaceX, is owed $4.6 million, while other creditors include Psionic, Astrobotic, New Space, and Frontier Aerospace. Reporting suggests that this bankruptcy will not be a reorganization, which is typical for Chapter 11, but rather an opportunity to, quote, cut their losses and sell the pieces to willing buyers. Next up, OSIRIS-REx shows asteroid surfaces age quickly. When OSIRIS-REx engaged its sample collection system and touched the surface of the asteroid Bennu, mission planners were surprised at how loose the was, learning that if the probe did not fire its thrusters to back away from the surface, it likely would have continued sinking into the asteroid. Scientists have now used close-up images to measure the volume of debris at the impact site, while another group used similar imaging to reveal that asteroids regenerate their surfaces much faster than expected. All right, and last up, SLS for Artemis, SLS for commercial launches. A second SLS core is nearing completion at Michoud. Its last few welds will be completed in the next few days. The engine section integration is planned for late October. The RS-25 is installed by the end of the year, and then it should be shipped to the Cape next March. This core will be flown by NASA on Artemis II. 
However, NASA and Deep Space Transport, aka Boeing and Northrop Grumman, are finalizing talks to switch to a new procurement model. Instead of NASA purchasing each vehicle and flying it themselves, NASA will purchase launch services, and Deep Space Transport will handle the launch. This Exploration, Production, and Operations contract, or EPIC, will include Artemis 5 through 9, with options for 10 through 14 and 15 through 25. EPOC reduces NASA's costs and allows other heavy lift customers to access SLS launches. All right, so moving on to this week in spaceflight history, and we have uh, five winners. We have Leon Running Man, Peter McMally, Deskin Miller, The Greek, and Steigerfield. Uh, and I just gave them all bonus points because the clue wasn't too hard. Uh, the clue was space is dangerous, and a, another word for space is gap. And so that was, uh, and I think everyone figured out exactly what I meant by gap. Uh, so the event was on the 2nd of August, 1993, and it was the loss of the Titan IV on ascent. So the Titan IV launch vehicle. And I didn't know quite where to start with this. There was, I couldn't find a lot of technical details, but it's actually a pretty interesting story. Mm. Um, and this is really a story about the years or what led up to this happening, the shuttle program, essentially. So basically, and it seems that everything kind of comes back to the shuttle. I feel like the last, I don't know, two months of twists <laughs> that we've done have, have all involved the shuttle in one way or another. Mm. Um, in this case, it's that in the late 70s, you know, we were anticipating uh, the shuttle pretty much at the time, the government, specifically the Air Force uh, and the DOD, they were both anticipating the shuttle taking over all of their military launch needs, uh, which is kind of hard to believe, but at the time, that's what they thought. And so the need for expendable launch vehicles was no longer going to be necessary. That was the thought process. So I kind of wanted to give a little timeline about kind of what led up to this. And so what happened, and this is more towards the late 70s and the early 1980s, they had what was called the CELV program, which was the Complementary Expendable Launch Vehicle Program. And this was uh, just like a stopgap kind of thing. And it was just uh, 10 Titan IV launch vehicles and then that's all they were going to do. And then after that, the shuttle takes over. Um, and this was really something that the Air Force had actually advocated for because from what I can tell, there were other people who thought that the shuttle was going to be so great that they didn't even need that. So it's a good <laughs> thing that the Air Force kind of was like, yeah, you know, like maybe we should have a little transition period here. And, and you know, like we should keep some expendable launch vehicles, yeah. uh, you know, like up and going. These were all Titan IVs with um, Centaur third stages. Um, and that's if they were needed with solid rocket boosters built by CSD. And that is um, a company I don't know if I've ever heard of, but uh, they yeah. are chemical systems division of United Technologies. Um, and they built solids for Titans back in the day. And so what happened was, again, this was a thought process. Then Challenger happened in 1986. I think it was right. Um, yeah. And at that point, the shuttle program was put on hold. And that's when people started to realize, oh, we really do need a more permanent expendable launch vehicle system. Um, and then eventually this is what leads to the evolved expendable launch vehicles. But at the time, you know, they kind of were in a rush. They were kind of in a panic. Lockheed, uh, who was responsible for developing the Titan IV, which was the new launch vehicle that was supposed to just be this little stopgap measure thing. Um, they were then contracted to develop the Titan IV launch vehicle. Now the Titan IV-A um, is what you call it when it has the strap-on boosters. So um, the 4A version, uh, they needed solid rocket boosters and uh, they wanted a better version than the previous uh, CSD, which was, again, Chemical Systems Division. Those were considered the old-fashioned boosters. So they wanted a more capable solid rocket booster. So uh, they contracted with Alliant Technologies and they were to build these new uh, 4B versions 
of the boosters, which would be a significant upgrade. But this proved more difficult than they had thought. Uh, the new motors were found to have some serious design flaws, and they needed a complete redesign, which was kind of surprising. Apparently, it's, it surprised a lot of people in the industry that such a big mistake was made. I don't know exactly what the nature of that mistake was, but they tested the motor, and apparently it blew up after one second. So it oh, was geez. that kind of a design flaw. <laughs> uh, they got one second of firing, and then the whole thing just blew up. So basically, the whole industry, or specifically the government, right, they're kind of in a bad spot. They need to keep launching uh, these military satellites. The space shuttle can't do it, and they don't have many rockets left. They they don't have much they can actually launch these payloads so uh, what Lockheed does is it goes back to CSD and says we need some of your old boosters that you were designing back in the late 70s and early 80s at this point CSD had kind of moved on to other projects uh, so this is a company that basically said hey we don't make these boosters anymore but they were told well we still need a few but don't worry you're still fired <laughs> and that was kind of the tone oh, um, and so they were like okay we'll make the boosters um, but the problem was and I kind of get into this more a little bit later that they didn't really have the expertise anymore and they didn't have all of the equipment that they needed to actually you know properly build them they were very reliable boosters but they hadn't been built in over like 20 years I think or something like that so at this point I kind of want to talk about the Titan 4A a little bit more uh, just in terms of its specs, then we'll get on to the launch and then we'll get on to the disaster and uh, the investigation. I'll keep it quick. <laughs> so uh, the Titan 4A, uh, which is this specific launch vehicle, is a first and second stage with um, a nitrogen tetroxide and aerosine powered engine or a series of engines. And then it has the optional Centaur T upper stage, which uh, was not necessary on this flight. Um, and that was, of course, a Hydrolux engine. Uh, then it had the two CSD built solid rocket motors, so these were the older ones, and each of these were capable of 3.2 million pounds of thrust. Uh, the new versions, which, you know, again, exploded as soon as they were lit up, those had a thrust of 3.4 million pounds. So they were, you know, definitely better. They were built with lighter composite casing, uh, so that's all great, but again, uh, they needed a complete redesign. So yeah, they went with the old boosters. So the payload for this particular mission was for uh, the SLD-COM constellation. So there have been several of these constellations. This was number three. They always comprised of three satellites, and they were uh, three NOS, or Naval Ocean Surveillance System satellites. But we don't know if that's really what they're called. I think that that's just kind of a name that's you know like given to them because these are highly classified. So no one knows exactly what they're called, uh, but they have a pretty good idea of what they do. And essentially, these track aircraft and ships by trying radio transmissions. They are deployed with the TLD, which is the Titan launch dispenser. So that's like a propulsion module, which will carry it to um, the specific orbit and then deploy the satellites. It also serves some other purposes. Um, it actually continues to stay on orbit. But um, that was the payload. Uh, that particular constellation was lost, but there was one a couple years later that was launched, uh, the SODCOM 4 constellation. And I don't know if they're still operational. Yeah, apparently. So they've been yes launching these since the 70s. And yeah. uh, there's actually one planned or they might have launched one earlier this year on a Falcon 9 although this this is clearly out of date there's a Wikipedia entry for one that would have it's planned to launch in April of 2022 so okay. obviously um, <laughs> so either it did or maybe it didn't but uh, yeah so I guess these are very this is still a technology that's very useful by triangulating via radio transmission uh, sure but anyway yeah so the uh, the Titan 4A and this particular vehicle was the K11, which is, you know, just, um, that, that particular vehicle designation. That was, um, that was, I believe, like the serial number, you could say. It lifted off from Vandenberg. So this was a polar launch and it lifted off from Slick 4W. Things seemed to be going well pretty late into the solid rocket 
burn. And then at T plus 101 seconds, the whole thing exploded. So something went wrong. And this is kind of where it gets interesting. So the investigation determined that a uh, repair had been made to one of the boosters and it was incorrectly done. So a portion of the segment three, which is like the third from the bottom, because if you look at, you know, these boosters, they're basically these segments that are stacked on top of one another. Um, so they had to make a repair to the third segment. And the problem was with what's called grain restrictor. Um, and have we talked about grain restrictor before? Not that I know. Because I didn't even really know about it. It's kind of cool that you got something so fundamental that we have totally not talked about in the show. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. And this came about because, again, there's very little that I could find on this particular mission, maybe because it was classified. That's quite possible. But, well, at first I found that it was just just a repair that had to be made on the segment three. And I was like, well, what's the nature of this repair? Then I found out that it had to do with the grain restrictor. But I was like, OK, well, what's that? And I still don't know exactly what the problem was with the grain restrictor. But what it is, it's used to coat the critical parts of the fuel grain in order to prevent premature burning and spiking upon ignition. So basically, um, it's to kind of like even out the burn and, you know, prevent things from burning too quickly, possibly around, you know, like sensitive joints and things like that as well. Um, but it's a kind of a layer of, it's kind of like this, I don't know which, how you would describe it, kind of like a big goopy stuff that you paint on to the inside of the fuel grain. And I found out about a lot of this just by way of a patent, which was meant to solve a lot of the problems with the grain restrictor that used to be used. And I'm assuming that this patent went through and now they use something better. But the problems back in the day were that when you used it, you would have problems with it kind of like it, it was very like runny. And so you had to rotate the entire solid rocket motor in order to make sure that it stayed just to make sure that it didn't coat the wrong parts of the interior there. And it had to be kind of like baked. So you had to put that whole segment inside some kind of an oven and you had to heat it up, hmm. uh, which is also not convenient as well. So it kind of had a curing process. I found from uh, one of your sources that the, uh, you know, the restrictor can also just uh, affect your, uh, your thrust curve over time as it burns through there. And so you might want to apply that restrictor just because you want control your, that's, that's, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, because we'd always talked about doing that by changing the geometry of, you know, the inside of uh, the fuel grain. You can create like a star pattern or, you know, each segment can have a different pattern. But I guess for a little bit more nuance and again, probably just to prevent the spiking on ignition, because that's a very violent process, then I can see where it would be very useful. Um, so there's probably, you know, just some kind of like transient needs there. But yeah, you can use it to also change the amount of thrust, which is kind of cool. Hmm. And so, yeah, it's this big layer of what looks, I guess it hardens into something kind of like plastic. So once they took the segment out, they reapplied or did something with um, the grain restrictor. And I think that they poured in new grain entirely. At least that's the wording that was used. Um, at this point, they just basically said it's good to go. But really what needed to happen was they needed to seal the edges, like the actual gap. Um, because there was a very small gap, you know, between the new grain and the old grain. So this pie cut segment was pretty much just poured in and then it was packaged up. And that's not the correct procedure. And it's thought that basically there were people at CSD who didn't know that that was a necessary step because they, because like all the necessary personnel had left and uh, they just didn't know how to do solid rocket motors very well anymore. Um, and uh, that was like a conclusion that was made by an interesting article that I read that basically said that we had to learn around like the early 90s how to make solid rocket motors again because the only ones or at least the expendable version of them because we still had them for shuttle but they weren't being used a whole lot on expendable launch vehicles because we didn't think that we would need those. So it was kind of a having to relearn how to do solid rocket motors. 
But um, yeah, so what happened was uh, the edges of this cut, there were there was just a tiny bit of a gap. And that's where hot exhaust gas kind of burned through that gap. And then it made it to uh, the outer casing, breached the outer casing. And then it started at that point, it, I think it hit uh, the oxidizer tank or the fuel tank of the first stage. And then that's what caused the explosion. So this is interesting. So basically, this is a mishap with precedent. So this is not the first time that this happened. And this is kind of the sad part of this whole tale is that it didn't have to happen. Um, this is all stuff that had been thought through, uh, but no one took any corrective measures. So yeah, again, this launch was in 1993, but uh, in April of 1986, and this is actually just months after the Challenger disaster, um, they had launched a Titan 34D, um, a 34D, and that was just like a previous version of the Titan, but it had the same CSD um, side boosters and they were improperly fabricated and that caused hot gases to burn through the casing. So again, I couldn't find out details on, on exactly what the fabrication problem was, but clearly something was not sealed correctly and that caused a burn through. This was not a problem with the O-rings because um, I think a lot of people at the time thought that because they were just coming off of the Challenger disaster. Um, although I don't know how quickly they came to that conclusion because this was just a matter of months after the Challenger incident. So um, yeah. But um, yeah, this is a separate problem. Uh, this is not an opening problem. This is a sealant problem, and which kind of made me think about how we always think that solid rocket motors are dead simple, but they're kind of not. Yeah. <laughs> There's things that can go wrong, and you need to, you know, make sure that you're sealing them properly and that you have the O-rings properly installed in all of this, and that they have to be kept at a certain temperature, blah blah blah, so on and so forth. Yeah, it's still rocket science. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> but um, this problem. Um, happened even back in the 80s because team members at CSD had mostly left, but they still had this backlog of solid rocket motors, but they were not being properly inspected. And apparently you need these high-powered x-ray machines in order to look into, uh, you know, the solid rocket motors and actually check for cracks and problems um, mm. with probably the grain restrictor as well. I don't know. But those were not available, um, at least not at the Cape. Um, and I don't know if they had them. I mean, I don't know where exactly they were being stored. Probably somewhere nearby, but uh, they didn't have the necessary, you know, equipment to actually properly inspect them. So in this particular disaster uh, for the 1993 launch of the K-11, they did have uh, the proper x-ray machine and they had this at the Cape. They did the x-ray and the engineers there actually rejected it. And then for some reason that I can't figure out, they just shipped it to Vandenberg anyway. And it was accepted. So you tell me, I don't know why they did this. I, like, I'm assuming that it was someone like maybe at the Pentagon saying, hey, we need this thing launched. Just do it anyway. Something like that. I don't know. But that seems like a My step guess, you wouldn't want to. It's, it's so funny because like I just I just read a lot about this mission and I don't remember why. But uh, but yeah, my, my impression was that it was a paperwork issue like. They rejected it, filed the paperwork, and then, you know, the next people to come in didn't do the proper paperwork to see that, you know, it should have been rejected. Oh, wow. So a clerical error. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe it was, yeah, basically a clerical error, not not somebody saying, you know, ignore that, let's push on. Okay. Well, that's a huge oversight. If that's what happened, it's almost mm. more disappointing. Yeah. Let's, uh, yeah, well, let's talk about some more disappointing things. So, um, <laughs> another problem that really led to all of this was, um, a general philosophy about how you should do contracts with companies that build your hardware. So I kind of call this the Pentagon versus the NRO and the Air Force. So the Pentagon, specifically the Defense Department Comptroller's Office, um, they were trying to get the cost of these boosters down. And the thought was, 
we should just have the company, in this case CSD, build a whole bunch of them and then you know we can stockpile them and then we can let them go and do other things because that will cost us. You don't have to keep them on the payroll. Mm. Um, and that's what ended up happening. Now, the Air Force and uh, the NRO, they strongly objected um, for good reason. They understood that you might need repairs. You might need something done at the last minute. Who knows? But um, you need the company who built the rocket booster still there, or at least you still need them to have the correct personnel there and, you know, to kind of, you know, still know this particular vehicle. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. So they went the route of manufacturing a whole bunch of boosters. Then they let CSD go. And of course, in 1993, they came back and said, we need a couple more, but you're still fired, which, you know, I, I <laughs> that's just not a good way of doing things. And like you said, Ben, it was, this is also down to a clerical error of some sort. But the fact that it was uh, just, it seems that there was a, a series of bad decisions made um, that didn't have to go that way. So perhaps they should have kept CSD uh, employed, but that was not the intention. Again, they were let go. So I don't know, like, how do you maintain a a fleet of launch vehicles when you're in this trans or like when you're coming out of this transitionary period that you thought was going to be temporary, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to restructure how you do military launches. Um, and that's kind of the whole problem here. That That was the state of launching military satellites in the 1980s and uh, the early 90s as well, which I didn't really know that that's exactly what was going on. I never thought about that um, and just how much they were betting on the shuttle uh, to take care of all these launch needs. Um, I mean, I knew that, you know, again, we discussed it probably last week or at least the week before that the shuttle was going to be doing some types of military launches. I didn't know that really it was meant to be like pretty much all of them, which is just kind of laughable now because there's, you know, we know now the launch cadence of shuttle, um, not to mention the cost. So none of that turned out to go the way that they had thought. So yeah, they had a lot ahead of them um, as far as restructuring and figuring out how they're going to do launch vehicles. And that's what led to, you know, the evolved expendable launch vehicle program and the rest is history. But yeah, mm-hmm. so that is your This Week in Space Flight History. Pretty cool tale, huh? Yeah, there's definitely a lot more than just the event behind that one. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, David, for that very depressing to Wissif. <laughs> it, was good. it was good though. Uh, so next week is going to be the 9th to the 15th of August. Uh, Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 1959, partial power picture. Great. All right. So if you have a guess as to what that clue is in reference to, shoot us a tweet with the hashtag thisweeksf. Uh, give us your guess. And good luck, everybody. Good luck. So now we'll do the upcoming spaceflight events. We got six of those this week. So a lot of stuff happening this week. Nothing last week. So this is a nice right. little change. <laughs> <laughs> All piled up here. So first up is not a launch. This is pretty cool. This is going to be uh, a briefing from NASA. So it'll be on NASA TV. It's called the Artemis One Big Picture Briefing. It's happening on Wednesday, August 3rd at 11 a.m. Eastern. Uh, it's the first of a pair of presentations uh, that NASA is going to be doing uh, about Artemis One, obviously. This is sort of the big overview. Uh, what's, what is Artemis One's uh, intention? What, what are the the big parts of it going to look like. And then they will do a, a deeper briefing later on that we'll also mention. Um, but yeah, that's on NASA TV. August 3rd is Wednesday at 11 a.m. 
Eastern. Pretty nice for me. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to remember to do that. And then up next on August 4th is an Atlas V that will be taking the Siebers Geo-6 payload to orbit. And so uh, Siebers stands for Space-Based Infrared System. Uh, if you're not familiar with those, uh, we've sent a few of them up and so we definitely talked about that on the show <laughs> and so yeah so the atlas 5 will be in the 421 uh, configuration if you're interested and that launch again is on august 4th with a window from 1029 utc to 1109 utc after that on august 4th uh, we have the launch of ns22 so this is another new shepherd mission or launch I don't know if it's really a mission, um, but um, <laughs> that will be launching from Corn Ranch, USA. I think anywhere that launches from Corn Ranch, you wouldn't really want to call it a mission. I suppose possibly. Um, <laughs> so that's launching. Um, well, the launch window for that uh, is 830 in the morning through uh, 11 o'clock Central Daylight Time. So that's a pretty decent sized launch window. The uh, crew looks like they have six people going, um, including the first Portuguese astronaut, as well as, which is kind of surprising to me, and the first hmm. Egyptian astronaut. So that's pretty interesting. So yeah, check that one out if you can. So after that, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5 uh, launching KPLO, the Korean Pathfinder Lunar Orbiter. It's really cool. So this is... Uh, uh, designed by the Korea Aerospace Research Institute, CARI. Um, they're going to be demonstrating their lunar technologies, their, uh, their ability to survey lunar resources. And they're also going to be producing a lunar topographic map. So like an elevation map. Pretty cool. This vehicle, KPLO, is also known as Denuri, which is really cool. It combines the Korean words for moon and enjoy. And like, I love a portmanteau <laughs> and th th this, this is a cool one. I like this one. So this is going to be launching Thursday, August 4th at 2308 hours UTC. Uh, it's going to be flying from Cape Canaveral, uh, slick 40. And then on August 5th, we have that aforementioned second of the Artemis uh, 1 mission briefings. And so this one's uh, called the Artemis 1 mission overview briefing. And it will take place at 11.30 a.m. Eastern time. And it'll include uh, people uh, from, you know, the Orion program, the Artemis uh different types of directors there. And uh, Reed Wiseman, who's uh, the current uh, chief of the uh, astronaut office. So I know there's not a big difference between overview and big picture, um, but if it helps you get an idea for what to expect, the, uh, the big picture will include um, Bill Nelson and the overview won't. So it's like, that's the kind of <laughs> differentiation. <laughs> That does get to the heart of it. And then after that, on August 9th, we have another Starlink. So this is Starlink 4-26. This is another Starlink group. And it's launching on a Falcon 9 Block 5, uh, as always, from Kennedy Space Center from Launch Complex 39A. And uh, the launch time is at 2300 UTC. So, yep, just another batch of Starlinks. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And so with that, let's do it with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Chris Steigarfield, Colin, Deskin, The Greek, Mike, Sam, Chubby, Gopal, VT, and The Greek for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show, please share this episode with a friend. 
You can also leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We'll see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you. Thank you.